0: Welcome to Gods and Movie Makers, otherwise known as Motion Scripture, the show about how religion and the Bible shape the stories we tell on screen.
1: I'm Joe Scales.
0: And I'm Katie Turner. On this season, The Chosen One. Why were they chosen? Do they want to be chosen? And why are we so attracted to these sorts of stories? We're joined today by Matt Page to talk about The Last Temptation of Christ. Matt has been researching, writing, and talking about cinema and the Bible for over 20 years. In that time, he's been a guest speaker for small groups, churches, university courses, and at conferences. He was a talking head in the TV documentary The Passion, Films, Faith, and Fury. He has published essays on Jesus in Italian films, 21st century depictions of the Nativity, Roberto Rossellini, and the history of the biblical canon on film. He's been running the Bible Films blog since 2006, and earlier this year, his book 100 Bible Films was published with the British Film Institute. If you are at all interested in depictions of the Bible in cinema, I highly recommend this very readable book. I promise it will introduce you to films that you haven't heard of. Welcome, Matt.
2: Thank you. Well, it's great to be here. We...
1: Have a couple kind of offhand questions before we really get into the main chat. And the first is, what made you decide to start your blog?
0: I'm particularly interested in this because your blog was incredibly useful to me when I was on my master's course. I came across it just Googling and was like, oh, this is a treasure trove of movies. <laughs>
2: Oh, thank you. Well, it was a, it was a few different things really, but I've been kind of looking at this area for about five years, connected with a few people. And I was at the time I was involved in an online discussion forum called Arts and Faith, and I was feeling a little bit like I was. Most of the discussion, I think, was people weren't that into the Bible films, and I was feeling I was spending a lot of time putting stuff on there wasn't really doing it for most people. So I decided to a friend a couple of friends had started blogs and I thought and, and blogs were a bit more all the rage mm. back in uh, back in two thousand and six. So I decided to start then and I've managed to just about keep it going over the years. Sometimes it's been pretty busy and I've had lots of time to do it and other times it's been a bit sparse. But but yeah, I still still really enjoy it. And I'm glad it was so useful because that's you know that was really my heart when I started doing it was to to make something that would be useful for people and people would be able to find stuff
0: So when did you first see The Last Temptation of Christ? Was that within the process of Bible and Films blog or well before that?
2: No, it was, well, it was before the blog, but it was was towards the start of getting into this subject, I suppose. So I heard about it a lot. So I remember in 1988 when it came out, I think I was 13, and I remember hearing a, a Radio 4 program about it and kind of being able to see the point of view that was being made about the filmmakers. But, you know, at the time we were kind of going to church as well, so I was... Aware, I guess I was aware of both sides, um but obviously too young to see it. And eventually got around to seeing it around 2000 because I'd, I'd started looking for looking at various Lives of Christ. It was much much harder then. Obviously there was no YouTube. No, the internet was still barely up and running, and and even things like Amazon. I think I I remember the name of the company I bought this film from on VHS, and it wasn't it wasn't Amazon because mm. they they were just one of a number of people that you would you would buy. VHS is from then so so yeah so pretty early on in this whole process because I think it was you know a film was always interesting at that stage there were only 10 15 films that you could get your hands on fairly easily.
1: So before we launch into discussing the film in some depth we'll do a quick film synopsis to bring our listeners up to speed. God loves me I know
0: he loves me I want him to stop I can't take that Whistles and the pain. I want him to hate
1: me. I fight him and make crosses so will hate me. I want him to find somebody else. I want to crucify every one of his Messiahs. The Last Temptation of Christ is a 1988 film directed by Martin Scorsese. Based on Nikos Kazanzaki's book of the same name. The film likewise generated some controversy around its portrayal of Jesus, as we see him unsure of himself and his purpose. The film takes seriously the question, what if Jesus doubted who he was or what his role was meant to be? The story follows his ministry in a way that often departs from the narrative of the canonical gospels. At his final moment on the cross, the doubt creeps back and he is tempted one last time. The story itself has some interesting things to say about the nature of chosen ones, Between this and Harry Potter, talking to snakes might be a sign that your destiny has arrived.
0: The Last Temptation of Christ is fairly different from your standard Jesus film, I would say. Don't get a nativity, we don't get a resurrection, we don't have a trial before the high priest, the Virgin Mary hardly features at all. Gorsese opens the film with Kazan Sakius' opening lines from his own book, and I'm just going to read that line for our listeners. The dual substance of Christ, the yearning, so human, so superhuman, of man to attain to God, or more exactly, to return to God and identify himself with him, has always been a deep, inscrutable mystery to me. So the idea being addressed here in this quote is that of the hypostatic union, which is the basic Christian principle that Christ's nature is made up of two substances. He is both fully man and fully God. What is Scorsese doing with this idea in his film
2: well, I mean it's interesting to to try and work out what he he actually thinks that is because you know I'm kind of aware of you know theologically and kind of I guess Christian history of the idea of God uh, Jesus being fully God and fully man, but that's not necessarily the way that Scorsese sees it, and you know i I still wonder about what when he says those words when he puts them on the screen what's he actually thinking And what is his his understanding of jesus and who and who he is because it's that that kind of idea of the fully god fully man uh dual nature is is not an easy concept to get your head around i think people often think it's half and half which uh, is not I, I guess christian orthodoxy but it's it's a version that makes a bit more sense to people but i'm still not entirely sure when i watch the film that that's necessarily what he's about i think he's almost that more that thing that paul says about you know what i wanted to do i found it hard to do and and that and that thing of you know the battle between doing the right thing knowing what the right thing is and actually being able to do it and the the kind of i mean coming back to the theme of the chosen one hearing a call on on your life um that you don't you, you don't want to do and trying to kind of battle between the spirit in the flesh, I suppose, in that way.
1: There's almost like a, a real lack of divine action throughout the film. So you get Satan popping up a lot, or some devil or some tempting figure, but there's not really any divine. So I do almost wonder this dual nature is less about God and human, and what you're saying This almost he's got a sense of his purpose and what he also wants to do and it's that wrestling between almost destiny and his own desire if you like
2: yeah i'm very keen to to look at the film in the context of scorsese's other work and i think you kind of see that that theme coming through another film so i guess particularly silence is, is a film that draws on that idea of what you feel you should be doing and, and the kind of the flesh and the, and the temptation there and essentially that is a you know a three-hour film about people knowing that they're meant to hold on and not not deny god and being put through the most extreme pressure under the most extreme pressure to do that and and yeah it's, it's a kind of an interesting sh- trajectory between those two films and it, and it crops up in various other films as well if it is
0: there is a real battle with doubt in silence mm. also and i think that you get that battle of doubt here as well silence is a much yeah. quieter film <laughs> not <laughs> to play off the name or anything but it is and i think it's really easy for people to see how silence is a faith Mm. film but people really struggled in the run-up to the last temptation being released and part of the reason scorsese included that text from the book was in order to really establish right away that he was not making a strictly Mm. gospel film and They even added a further disclaimer, the film is not based on the Gospels, but upon the fictional exploration of the eternal spiritual conflict. I'm assuming having looked into The Last Temptation that you're aware of a lot of the controversy.
2: Yeah, well, very much. I mean, I was, you know, as I say, I was kind of around alive at the time and old enough to kind of be aware of it. And I think it was, I think, I mean, just to put it into context, it was in the late 80s and and certainly in this country, and I I would imagine to, to to a similar degree in America, the issue of kind of, uh, controversial depictions of of faith and other related things was was very much in in the kind of the currency of the day. It's very much being talked about a lot. So at the same time as this, we'd had uh, Jean-Luc Godard's *Hail Mary* three three years before, where I think the protests were even stronger in, in France, and, and Godard himself got attacked after making that film. We had, uh, I mean, we've just had in the last few days we had uh, Salman Rushdie being attacked for a fact, a while but that was started in the late eighties. Uh, again similar time may even have been 1988 serrano's uh, photograph piss christ was taken in 1987 that was a very controversial piece of work at the time as well there was another film called visions of ecstasy which was kind of a short uh, avant-garde film that depicted i think it's saint Teresa, kind of having a kind of sexual fantasy involving the, the cross and and Jesus on the cross and there was generally a lot of talk about video nasties as well and this idea of yeah you know, where what should be censorship and people like uh, in Britain we had this woman called Mary Whitehouse that was mobilizing a lot of protests about content of stuff because video was a, a new technology it was emerging and there was a kind of a window where the kind of stuff that gets circulated on YouTube now or just in video things at the time there was a bit of a market that some people exploited of being able to film a cheap movie on VHS and then and then circulate it kind of under the radar a little bit. And so so all these things were going on at the same time. That wasn't Scorsese's plan. he had been been intending to film this story for a long time, but but as it happened, it, it kind of was launched in the middle of all these other all these other controversies going on. And it was, you know, and it's probably the, the, the biggest of all of them.
0: Yeah, I didn't realise that I mean when you mentioned some of them, I was thinking, oh yeah, that took place in, but I hadn't thought about it within that that broader context. I had really thought about the, the controversy being just about the film rather than sort of, I guess, bubbling tension around these ideas of what what is okay to depict and what is okay to say. And people were really upset. Some things that they had heard from, a scr- I think it was a screening in New York, and some stuff leaked about that, particularly in the final temptation at the end of the film when Jesus has sexual romantic relationship i mean he doesn't actually yeah right that's that's my vision but that the concept of that upset people quite a lot and there were a lot of protests in the u.s and i think in a paris theater a molotov cocktail was thrown into a theater so yeah big deal but i i just i hadn't connected it to all that other stuff so that that makes so much more sense when you think about it within the, the broader context
2: and I think it's worth pointing out as well that uh, Kazantzakis' book itself was controversial in its day. It, the kind of controversy around that had died off because it had been 30, 35 years since since it had been released. I think it was released in the 50s. But it, but it wasn't like it was a. It was just based on you know early reports of things. I think it was. You know, it was it was a kind of I guess an ongoing story in the sense of that that novel had been banned and had been proved controversial. And the, and the, I think there were. Stuff from the Vatican had marked it down in some way, but also, I mean, it it kind of seems almost hilarious now. But even like Jesus of Nazareth, which is the kind of most tame and you know middle of the road portrayal of of these issues, even that there was controversy around it. And originally, the I think it was General Motors were due to sponsor it originally, and word got out that that Zeffirelli was going to. Do this portrayal of a more human Christ, which is kind of hilarious looking back, and because of that, there was a bit of a bit of a hoo-ha, and certain groups protested, and General Motors decided they weren't going to sponsor it and pulled the pulled the plug on the funding. So it, it was a kind of time when these things were regularly regularly contested, and obviously, you know, Life of Ryan, a couple of years after that as well. So
1: watching it now in 2022, I find it slightly fascinating that this comes across as quite a pious film. Mm. In some of its themes and the ideas it's trying to wrestle with, it doesn't feel like some of the examples are deliberately antagonistic or trying to do something that attacks a tenant of Christianity or certain elements. So there's there's something slightly jarring to think about. Why this generated con- controversy? But I think you've really nicely illustrated that even dealing with Jesus on screen was this kind of thing, and it's not surprising that this film perhaps also caught that. Even if it's not piss Christ, is the one that comes to mm. mind. A very similar time. Yeah,
2: it's surprisingly conservative theologically. I think when you when you if you take the imagery out of it, and assuming that you do read the ending as a temptation or as a you know something that's going on in Jesus's mind as he's, as he's dying, which is is you know how I would, certainly how I would read it, but I know not everyone does read it that way. Then it's you know it's it's very it's very conservative. Jesus hears God's call in his life. He starts his ministry. He meets with John the Baptist. He you know performs miracles, does teaching, gets betrayed by Judas, gets crucified, dies on the cross. And then I think I would say there is a resurrection. I'd say that kind of cinematic ending does that in as a way of doing that. Mm. Now that's a much more conservative portrayal of the story than a year later, Jesus Montreal, which was was kind of praised by a lot of a lot of church groups and was much better, you know, much better received. Even though essentially it kind of t- has a much more controversial take on Jesus and, and essentially you know denies the resurrection out, outright. So it, it's kind of interesting. I, you know, I find that really interesting, and I think. I mentioned Godard's film already a few years before. I mean that's even more conservative in, in again, imagery less so, but in terms of the story it's telling, but that that had was, you know, the protests were even stronger in some ways for that. So so yeah, so it's always seemed strange to me that.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things I enjoy about it so much, and and to me as not a Christian, but somebody who has studied and understands Christianity, I think fairly well, is that if you drill down to the concept that Christianity is based on that this person is fully human and fully divine. Mm. What that means, what that must be to experience that, to have that tension within oneself. It is fascinating that it hasn't been explored more, Mm. that we have focused so much on God and so little on the humanity. But in this film, we get so much of the humanity. So we see a lot of things that we don't usually see in depictions of jesus so we see character development (laughs) we never see character development in depictions of jesus and i think that's really from my point of view beautifully signposted through costume change that he experiences and his hair grows and he he becomes the sort of iconographic christ as he's coming to terms with himself but we also see lovely other bits of his humanity he dances at the wedding of cana like this free he's just seems free to dance and he also has sexual desire um, as all humans do is there any bit of that portrayal of the humanness of Jesus that really speaks to you or really strikes you
2: I mean the first time I watched the film I I was kind of aware of quite a lot of the story and how it works and, and the kind of the sexual content and I think I kind of you know had a rough view on on how I felt about that, but what really struck me was, and it took me quite a while to work out what was happening when I first saw it. Actually, it's not at all from some of the kind of bits I'd read about it before. It wasn't at all, you know. I was quite disorientated trying to work out where we are in the story when it, it starts mm. off. But that that opening, those opening scenes, uh, where Jesus is kind of under, you know, hearing the call of God and hearing that he is he going to be the chosen one, and he's trying to deal with that. And the idea of that being, I guess, being a terrible thing, goes to quite extreme levels to kind of push against that and to and to get and to get away from that. And and the book brings this this out a bit more. But that was what really struck me because I think I mean there have been different views through church history about what when what Jesus's self knowledge was. And I mean you you know the the artworks better than I do, Katie. But I'm aware of certain artworks where you kind of see Jesus the child with a vision of the whole universe. Not in, mm. not in a thought bubble, but that's how I'm picturing <laughs> it right now. But that kind of idea, and then the idea of kenosis and him kind of developing his knowledge, and at what point did these things work themselves out and come to him? But I think it tends to be very sanitised, and here it really kind of gets to the nature of what's happening, of that you know the enormous amount of pressure of potentially being in that role, and obviously the kind of the physical torment of it that's coming. And that was the thing that really struck me: the fact that you know actually this was would have been a very yeah a very grave grave's not quite the right word but you know i mean just the kind of the impact of okay this is who you are and this is what what you're going to do or just kind of hearing that call which you know at some point it would have emerged if you follow the the kind of gospels accounts of things then yeah that would mess your head up (laughs) and and even in the film it's kind of it's gradually emerged and again one of the things that's interesting about the film is jesus doesn't really know what he's doing you know, I was watching it again the other night and he you know and Judas is going insane because he keeps changing his mind and he keeps saying look I don't I don't really know what I'm doing and what the call is and is it is it love is it the axe is it you know the temple and going through all these different things so yeah it is a it is a film that as you say, one of the rare ones that that has character development in it. About ten or eleven years later, there was a TV version of the story called Jesus, uh, starring Jeremy Sisto as Jesus, and it did a very toned-down version of some of these things, which was quite interesting because they were, again, they were these were things that had not been done, really, in Jesus films up to this point. So,
1: we talked about Jesus' character and his development, but I'm also fascinated with what the film does with the characters around him. So on the plus side Judas is a major figure and has quite a lot to do in that role and you'd mentioned in the brief summary that Judas kind of betrays him but it's fascinating that Judas is doesn't want that to happen in some ways and has to be talked into it so we've got on the one hand Judas is really brought in and given quite an interesting role and then Mary is also I, I wish they'd done more with Mary the mother because she's very peripheral And they do have a great scene of him kind of just say, I don't know you, but there's nothing really for her to do. And I kind of building around the world around Jesus and the characters around him in the film, I think also situates him in the same way, much more in this humanizing narrative. And also, I think in discussions with Katie, we thought, well, this film really exemplifies his chosenness in that sense and how people play off him. But are there any key moments that you think... Might speak to that.
2: I think the relationship with Judas is is really interesting, actually. It, I mean, essentially, it's a recurring role in Scorsese's films, the buddy role, and so you can think of the brother in Raging Bull and various other films of his. That there is this kind of special buddy role, often played by Keitel at Mean Streets again, and this is very much that role that it's a kind of sparring person. There's a close relationship between the two, and. I think not want to go too far down this line, but as well, you get this quite often in Scorsese's films this sense of the tension between the buddy and the wider group of male friends and the female love interest essentially. So Wolf of Wall Street is a more recent one that people may have, may have seen a bit more. You have very much got the idea of the tension coming in of Margot Robbie's character comes in and potentially displacing, and eventually she gets kind of shoved out by the male relationships in that film. And so it's it, it's not necessarily that surprising that Mary Magdalene after Jesus has quote-unquote saved her goes away really until the temptation scene and similarly that the mother of Jesus isn't there as those male relationships develop and particularly the the dominant one with Judas.
0: For me the relationship with Judas is one of the key things that I think separates Jesus in this film as being more of a chosen one Mm. from the classic savior because one of the things that we really get with chosen one characters not always but often is that they have a support system so they have people that like without those people they're never going to achieve the thing that they're meant to achieve so we have Ron and Hermione for Harry Potter and Samwise Gamgee for Frodo Mm. who really gets him I mean without Sam Frodo does not drop that that ring into Mordor Neo in the Matrix has Trinity and here Jesus has Judas, and at the very end, when he's been tempted, it's Judas who gets him back mm. onto that cross to finish what he is supposed to do. Although, if it's a vision, he never really left the cross. Yeah, but
2: and it's probably it, the only film, yeah, uh, that I can think of off the top of my head where Jesus does need another person, where he has that need for people.
0: Yeah, Judas is so mm. central to Jesus being who he is in this movie and the fact that it's judas who's been chosen to play that role not john not peter i think that's really interesting Mm. too so we get this new complex portrait of judas Mm. and that's
2: interesting from a textual point of view because you know some scholars would say that the judas character is is kind of brought in as a shadow self and almost a a kind of anti-jesus figure almost brought you know brought in as a foil and that wasn't necessarily a you know, a historical character. I mean, I guess that's probably a bit of a passe 30, 30 years ago type discussion uh, within academia today. But but that idea, I think, sits quite interestingly with that whole thing of like you were just saying at the end when it's actually quote-unquote Judas that is, that is the one that gets him back on the cross. Judas is portrayed as a physical, actual person that is, is there in the stories. But it's it's kind of interesting given what we're saying at the start about the film being a, a metaphor for the battle between flesh and, and the soul. I guess there's just something there in terms of that idea of Judas being a kind of shadow self i suppose
0: so do you see that really in the scene where judas and jesus are arguing about the kingdom and for judas it's here on earth right now we bring justice to people now in this reality and jesus says no it's in the world to come
2: um maybe i mean that connection is something that's only really just kind of (laughs) occurred to me as we've been talking about it But, uh, but um but yeah I think it yeah I think it's just an it's just an interesting way of thinking about the film because as I say there was a period where I guess with a lot of the Jesus seminar type era that kind of discussion around was Judas a real disciple or was he kind of brought in and similarly you know like say Barabbas as well these you kind of get a few of these characters in the gospels that are close to Jesus but not Jesus and they kind of have some of those similarities I don't think Scorsese was deliberately trying to play up to that I don't know I think sometimes with these films you just kind of see the reflections of ideas bouncing around them sometimes. And I think that's one that occurs to me in terms of Judas's role.
1: Also how Judas understands Jesus' mission seems to be something quite different. Mm. And there's the wonderful scene when he comes out of the desert or out of the wilderness and the disciples have been waiting for him and having a really, feels like quite a true to life yeah. argument amongst themselves about what they want to do and where they want to go. And the film doesn't really telegraph it that well. I almost missed it. But you have a couple of different representations mm. of what Jesus holds in his hand. So in one they see him pulling his heart out, and Judas is watching him yeah. and he's got an axe. I think it recalls some earlier scenes that Judas has kind of talked about this axe and some of John's message. So there's this really yeah. shifting image of who Jesus is, not just in his own eyes, but also in the eyes of other characters in the film. And Paul goes so far as so say, you mm. don't matter. <laughs>
0: They all see in him what they want to see in him. They're projecting. And I think that's That's what you get, the argument between them before he comes out of the wilderness. So I thought that was a really wonderful exploration of what belief is. Mm. To pick back up on Judas, in so many ways, I find him a completely intriguing character Mm. in this film. And I think it strikes me as so much more true to life that somebody who is doing something that Jesus did as a historical figure would have more of a support system than we ever see Mm. him having in depictions. But on the flip side of that kind of positive picture, we have Harvey Keitel, who is himself a Jewish actor, Mm. portraying Judas against Willem Dafoe, who is not. He's your typical blonde hair, blue eyed, not Jewish Jesus. And Harvey Keitel is also a redhead, and I think about it a little bit like there was a lot of controversy around the casting in Jesus Christ Superstar, the actor who Hmm. played Judas as a black man, against the actor who played Jesus, who is white and, again, blonde and blue-eyed. And there was some discomfort about that. And I don't know that there was much discomfort vocalized in the same sort of way around Harvey Keitel being a red-headed Judas, even though there's a very long history of Judas being depicted Mm. with red hair and that being used as part of anti-Semitic stereotyping of Jews. So there's quite a famous anti-Semitic picture of the wandering Jew and he has Mm. long flowing red hair and a long flowing red beard.
2: The film has a a kind of controversial reputation. 35 years later, it's still hard to come to it without that as Mm. your initial, as your kind of frame. I don't think that that was Martin Scorsese's agenda. And whilst he maybe thought there would be a bit of that, he wasn't necessarily surprised by the protests and it was a kind of long process of the film getting made and some of that was in the mix. At the same time, I think it was... I mean, pious seems quite the wrong word, but Scorsese's been fascinated by Catholicism and questions of God throughout his whole career. He was potentially going to be a priest at one stage and decided to be a filmmaker. And he's, you know, said some quite alarming things about his faith. It, you know, it's still it's still a very real issue for him. Even you know the fact that he made Silence six or seven years ago, however many years after this film. One of the things he's kind of said a few times was when he was asked why he wanted to make this film, he said, "So I can get to know Jesus better." Mm which I think is a really interesting quote. And I know Zakis said something similar about it. And I think when you look at the, some of the choices that are made around the accents and Harvey Keitel and so on, I think that makes some of those elements fit in a bit more. Leaving aside the the red hair, I mean, we've talked about Keitel having the buddy role. I mean, neither of them is, is necessarily an out-and-out hero, but they both are strong and relatively positive portrayals and judas is a very reluctant betrayer in this in this film so i think there's quite a lot there in terms of coming from mean streets where you've got de niro and Kaitel being his best friend and that that kind of dynamic is very much reproduced here i think and Kaitel being critical to that and having worked with scorsese a lot and i can understand the idea being pitched to him but yeah, the red hair, and as I say, I'm yeah, it's been used and not in a good way in church history. But again, I think I think we approach that in, in terms of you know recognizing the anti-Semitic history of some of those Christian works of art, most of those Christian works of art going back through history. But I don't know that that would necessarily be something that Scorsese was yeah. necessarily that aware of. And you get this again and again with people making the stories of the Bible making the films about the Bible, they're always homaging some of these earlier works and the painted works. So going right back to the very first Jesus films, a lot of which were almost literal reproductions of Tissot and Doré's Bible. Uh, De Mille in 1927, I think he boasts that he used 300, he referenced 300 different paintings in his work. Mm. And Scorsese, there's a, a number of very deliberate representations of other works here, uh, particularly the slow motion of Jesus carrying the cross through the streets. The end is, is very much riffs on the Bosch painting. And there's a scene of him towards the end of his life in the temptation sequence where you kind of get almost that kind of man shot of Jesus' feet closest to the camera that is very like that painting. So my hunch, certainly with the hair, is possibly that that was an unthought-through homage to some of those other works. I can't remember from the book whether Judas is described as being red-headed there. It might even come from there. Mm. But yeah, I think when you understand more of the context about it, it's quite an alarming choice. And
1: there's a similar issue with Orientalism as well. And I think there's a certain reflexivity to it. Mm. So your Jesus story draws from previous iterations consciously and unconsciously. We'd notice yeah. this depiction of Mary Magdalene as a sex worker with all these other mm. kinds of trappings that have been associated with that in visual culture rather than with let's say quote-unquote authentic authenticity i think that fits in very well with some of these other things and you think well why would they deliberately do that because the film does seem to want to wrestle with ideas about identity and Mm. self-doubt and these things are almost like a bit of a distraction so there's a kind of unexamined thing and i think that probably accounts for some of the choices around the visuality of judas
2: yeah, you know, there's a lot of orientalism lot. in this film. It, you know, it comes really, really struck me watching it. I'm going to say more so than average. That's a weird thing to say.
0: No, I think you're correct. I think it's more overt.
2: Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a deliberate strategy actually to make the world, Jesus' world, disorientating. Scorsese is a huge fan of the biblical epics and films like The Robe, King of Kings, is a couple of homages to that as well. Greatest Story Ever Told as well. And I think in those films. The orientalism still exists, but the world they're trying to put across is much more, as classically with epics, is much more this idea of people in the past weren't that different from us. Whereas this film is, I think, is coming from the other point of view and is trying to make the point that this world was very different from our world, and to disorientate people and to throw people into a into a context they're not familiar with. Yeah, and I think unfortunately that's the way they they went about it. I mean, Scorsese did do a lot of historical research for the film there's a couple of key elements particularly around the crucifixion. So this is, I think, the first Jesus film to show Jesus naked on the cross and the position with the nail going through the heel bone. That was a relatively recent archaeological discovery at the time. I think it'd been about 10 years. But yeah, and so he does try and incorporate those things. But in terms of costume, yeah, the historical element then kind of disappears into a more orientalist take on stuff and going with vaguely, it's the East you know, in more extreme fashions. So particularly like, say, the wedding wedding at Cana.
0: I think you're entirely right on it being a disorienting thing. And I actually Mm. said to Joe that I feel like it's more of a fantasy than Mm. a period piece. Yeah. In the way that like some of our fantasy stuff is set in the medieval period. But it's not, you know, like, (laughs) um, it's not medieval. It's just medieval-ish. And I think that that's kind of what we're getting with The Last Temptation. And so actually, even though the Orientalism is much more overt than a lot of other Jesus films, it almost bothers me a little bit less, which is weird because I'm Mm -hmm. very bothered by Orientalism. Mm -hmm. But I think it's because it's doing that. It fits with Peter Gabriel's soundtrack, yeah. You know, the soundtrack also is like this isn't a straight period piece. We're going to make it clearly 80s in some places and clearly contemporary in some places and then orchestral in some other places and but at the same time Joe noticed that the Biblical Archaeological Review was thanked yeah. in the acknowledgements of the credits mm. so they did like to your point that they did their so research like
1: the, yeah. the nail heel bone they had a really nice it was like two seconds of a mikveh like a ritual immersion bath i said i've never seen one of those in a film i love that they've got that because it's so contemporary with the scene they're doing Things like when they're using aura lamp, there's lots of nice little details that like archaeologists go, oh yes, <laughs> someone's told them that this is part of that. So maybe that's uh, we could call it disorientalizing <laughs> or something.
0: Yeah, I mean you <laughs> notice some wax tablets in one scene too. Oh yes, but, yeah, yeah. But yeah, the costumes, no, there's nothing, hmm. nothing that nods what about to Pontius the Pilate? historical. A Pontius Pilate's costume, uh, yeah, oh, David yes. Bowie. Yeah, oh, David Bowie. I lost my mind
1: when I saw that. <laughs> oh. I had no idea he was going to be in the film. It was oh, really? Yeah, yeah. How about Pontius Pilate? Was he well costumed? Oh no, he was another interesting character, actually.
0: No, that costume is incorrect. I mean, okay. it's correct in that he's in a toga. So usually, we get, particularly in like more contemporary Jesus films, we have Pilate in armor. And Pilate was there as a representative of Rome, and if he was presiding over any kind of trial or official thing, he would have been required by Rome to wear a toga for that role. So Life of Brian gets that right. Ben-Hur, 1959, William Wyler, Ben-Hur gets that right. And so it's right in that it's a toga, but it's just incorrect in what the toga looks like. Mm. It's not it's not accurate in its actual appearance.
2: To me as well, it feels the epitome of, it just happens again and again in Jesus' films, is that Pilate is always better looking or more relatable or more heroic yeah. than Caiaphas is. You can show pictures of the actors out of costume for any Jesus film and you can always tell which one is going to be the the Roman. I mean, in this, you know, this film, you're having an actual pop star against a very, you know, I mean, there's there's literally zero nuancing around. I mean, I don't think they're even given names in this. I can't quite remember whether Caiaphas is actually used as a name, but there's a clear Caiaphas and Annas figure.
1: They have the high priest with the
2: breastplate. The chocolates. Yeah, the- my, my wife always calls those the chocolates. <laughs> yes,
1: and then uh, another priestly figure next to him
0: who's wearing tefillin on his head. Yeah, they're not named, but yeah, they're clearly yeah. who they are.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a particularly bad portrayal of them. Well, not everyone loves David Bowie, but um, <laughs> yeah, an actual, pop, an actual <laughs> pop star. I love David Bowie. So, so yeah.
1: Yeah, I hadn't considered
2: that. It's very much there in Passion of the Christ as well, that, you know, that's mm-hmm. another one where the where the the gulf is extreme. It's less extreme in some, but it's usually it's usually very very noticeable straight off. Who is, who is the Roman, and wants to wash his hands of all this stuff, and who is the the high priest. Mm.
0: Yeah, mercifully, this movie doesn't show them for very long, and we don't get a trial, no. and so we don't have to deal with any of any of that no. stuff.
1: That's what I found interesting because you don't have the the trial of the high priest, which is a very reoccurring visual motif mm. uh a scene that's often recalled often conflated with the pharisees as well like the pharisees often if you ask yeah, people who get church jesus in as well her, yeah and they, they're nothing to do with it but, no. uh, but
2: they stop chapters ahead yes yeah
1: <laughs> they vanished
0: it's He's, absent from a couple other jesus films also though mm-hmm. it's not right. the first one yeah. to not have no. the trial i always forget which one it is is it greatest story ever told that it's not in or King of Kings, one of those two?
2: Uh, I think it's probably King of Kings. Yeah, so I can't it, remember off the top of my head. Then I think a also, bit. but King of Kings has that very strong that very strong line around the kind of Rome yeah, thing.
0: That one um, is the teenage Jesus, right? <laughs> yeah. And then I think it's the Jesus film, also the one from the seventies, doesn't have a trial scene. No.
2: Okay. I think. I'm expecting you yeah. to
0: remember better than me, Matt. So,
2: <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I don't. I, I don't think the uh, the Messiah, the the um, Rossellini one, doesn't have it.
0: I want to ask one question. The last temptation of Christ goes for two and a half hours, two hours and forty. If you could cut one thing out to make it shorter, what would you lose?
2: Oh, I mean, it, I yeah, I do think it. I do think it is a bit baggy, to be honest. I mean, I had to cut this a lot of this out in my review in the book, but I think there are there are quite a few bits that. Don't massively work that well, I'm not a huge fan of the pulling the heart from the chest scene. There's various other bits and pieces off the top of my head. I think that that kind of middle section, about fifty percent of the running length is Jesus' ministry. It could have done with a bit more taking out of that section in general
1: I guess you're you're on the rails at that point with the gospel narrative so it largely follows them and the interesting thing are like the tweaks or something jesus says off the back of like raising lazarus so there's like little bits that are interesting in it but on the whole you're like okay i know what what's happening
2: watching it the other night i was much less i was much less conscious of that kind of boredom feeling that i think i've had you know experience bits of that before. And it's such a funny experience watching it because you kind of go from there's some scenes that I think are brilliant and you know, I, I love the Sermon on the Mount scene. I've used that so many times. And and various other bit, you know, the kind of the dancing bit and the, there's a meme of the uh Jesus giving cheers, isn't there? At the wedding in Cana. And how it can go quite quickly from a bit that is brilliant. And again when I first watched this and had only really seen a lot of like stodgy films that had a real energy and a aliveness to it to then being bits that feel a bit slow and self-indulgent
1: Matt it's been so great having you with us today but before we let you go we'd love for you to pitch us a pairing this can be anything anything at all that you would pair with The Last Temptation of Christ it could be a drink a food another movie a book an article a piece of music the sky is the limit
2: the companion piece I would choose and we have kind of mentioned it already but I think I would choose Silence the 2016 Scorsese film just because you know if you've had two and three quarter hours of last temptation then uh, <laughs> another three hours of a, of a slow slow moving uh yeah angst is probably just what you're after but but i think yeah i think it just i just find that the gap and the process and and those kind of two films they feel like they they go together
0: thanks so much for being here today matt it's been a real pleasure it's been a great conversation
2: well thanks for having me i've really enjoyed it it's been great great fun
0: That's our show today. Gods and Movie Makers is researched and produced by us, Joe Scales and Katie Turner, and supported by listeners like you. Our music is by Style the Kid. As always, you can follow us at Pod on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, head on over to our website, GodsAndMovieMakers.com, where you can donate to us or subscribe for additional content. Thanks for listening.